Earth, A Love Story Written and read by Robin Lassiter Chapter 8 In the slaughterhouse of love, they kill only the best, none of the weak or deformed. Don't run away from this dying. Whoever's not killed for love is dead meat. Rumi William was pretty clear with me up front. You dummy, he'd say, ruffling my hair. Of course I love you. But I already told you I don't want a girlfriend. Let's just be best friends, okay? William was powerful, big in a way that let me feel small. Smart, charming, stylish, messy, broken, broke. He spent a lot of time polishing his veneer. I spent a lot of time polishing his veneer, too. I was still on crutches when I sold my house in New Mexico and moved us to Hawaii, the Big Island. I pretended hard that this was true love. I don't know what he pretended. Whatever his shortcomings, I couldn't even begin to look at my own. I forgave them all. Whatever his needs, forget about my own needs, I fulfilled them. Whatever his preference for our relationship, those clearly never worked out anyway, was fine by me. It was fine if we lived together and slept together once in a while. And it was fine when he said it didn't mean anything and we shouldn't pretend that it did. Fine. Okay. Whatever. I served him my head on a block with the side of my soft bleeding heart and my guts. And here, go ahead and have my soul too. No, take it. I want you to have it. You can have it for free. I love you for free. I sacrifice myself on the altar of your indifference. I will be whoever I think you want me to be. I'm pretty sure when you see how great this all is, I'll win you over and you'll fall in love with me for real. Yeah, he said, putting his arm around me. I think that might happen too. Maybe if you just stop pressuring me so much. Fine. Yes. No problem. I blinked up at him and swallowed my own saccharine bullshit and barely even choked. Hawaii is paradise, no doubt. The riot of color, the thousands of shades of blues and greens and the smells of salt water and of feral cats and mongoose and mold and the fumes from the volcano and the heavy, sweet scents of flowers and the humidity and the perfect temperature all combined to form a thick strata a density that I could fall into. The island held me, and there was a gentleness and a balm for my cracked, dried-out soul. Paradoxically, the big island is all creation and destruction energy. It is initiating energy. Kundalini snakes crawling up your spine and wrenching your back energy. It burns through your shit faster than you can process it and it burned through what was left of me until I was ash. Anything that hadn't been obliterated in the adobe abode in New Mexico was finished off here. Rilke wrote, Everything is blooming most recklessly. If it were voices instead of colors, there would be an unbelievable shrieking into the heart of the night. Oh, Rainier, I thought. You've been to Hawaii. The minute we got there, Hawaii started working its particular magic on us. 
It was as if we'd stepped off the plane and into a special world that was one half of a degree away from the consensus reality world. There were wild synchronicities, unexplainably weird and mystical events, even an honest-to-God, I-shit-you-not full-on miracle. There was a ceaseless, restless, pull-you-out-of-your-mind-into-the-flow-of-the-island energy that was inescapable. On my first day there, I got out of my car, and a man walked up to me, holding out a paper flower. This is for you. Welcome to the center of the universe. My name is Flower. Have you been to the UFO landing site yet? Do you have a cigarette I can bum? I took the flower from Flower and sat down on the curb with him. I rolled two cigarettes and we smoked them together while he kept an eye out for the next someone who needed a flower and had something to give in return. Since the time with the spheres when my second gift, my North Star, returned, it never really went away. It just took on different forms. In the adobe house, it was a dark spell. Ghosts and nightmares. Here in Hawaii, it was the realm of synchronicity and strangeness. It shifted and morphed and kept me off my square. It knocked me sideways. It waited for me to adjust, to acclimate, and then it hit me again. And it was bizarrely, undeniably personal. Since the prayer to the moon and the dark, scary time in New Mexico with my house address, 1111, those numbers followed me everywhere. I have a difficult time writing about this because I can still hardly speak about it. I am embarrassed by it and confused by it. The numbers that showed up for me continuously were 1111 and variations of a combination of 3, 5, and 8. They were just everywhere. On the clock every time I glanced up. The exact amount I paid for breakfast. The exact amount of change I received. On license plates in front of me. Addresses, highway signs, book pages, exact times of weird events, whatever. Even while it was happening, I was questioning it. When I got to Hawaii, it exploded to a level I could no longer push aside. But even if I could manage to convey to you what was happening, even if I could report to someone the exact details of these synchronistic number-centric events, it meant less than nothing to anyone other than me. It was totally personal. It was both steeped in intimacy and profound importance on one hand, and utterly meaningless on another. It was a trail of breadcrumbs that led nowhere, but while I was hot on it, it felt like just around the next bend it was all going to come together and everything would be clear. There would be some giant meaning-making moment that would bring a culmination with perfect clarity. If only. That's how everything on the island felt all the time. The spheres didn't visit me. I didn't see any UFOs there. I didn't have experiences with the buzzing resonance, but it felt like I was following a cryptic, cosmic treasure map towards something extraordinary. It became feverish, and it was hard to tell what was what, and there was certainly no discernible why. Notably, William and I had many of these experiences together. It kept us both on the hunt, both trying to find something grander than what we had. It was an electric, heightened, bizarre time. 
Even in the midst of the amazing things that were constantly blowing our socks off, I was mostly just focused on locking this thing down. I cooked for him and bought him whatever he wanted. I forgave him his indiscretions, which weren't actually, because, again, he'd been pretty clear with me up front. I held a wide open space for him to be as free and wild as he wanted to be. I welcomed him home to his separate bedroom when something went sideways out in the world and he needed comfort. My entire focus was on doing everything I could think of to make him love me. Back in the York times, I'd almost had my life together. And yes, it had all fallen apart. But if I could just have a big comeback with a big out-of-this-world love story, it would right the ship. And don't forget that on top of all of that, on top of that big fantasy fairy tale, he owed me. Look at everything I was doing for him. I was a righteous, indignant, furious, gushing wound when he wouldn't return my affections or treat me as I wished to be treated. I kept working at it, though. Kept trying to pull him in. Kept raging at him when he inevitably turned away. On November 1st, the Day of the Dead, I made an altar for William's father. Forget the people in my life who have passed on. Forget that I have my own ancestors to honor. I printed an 8x10 photo of his dad and put it in a frame on the big metal table next to the front door. I picked flowers from around the house. So many flowers here. Always abundant, always sweet, always blooming. And put them in cut glass vases on either side of the photograph. I wrapped it all in a beautiful string of Rudraksha beads a friend had brought me from a temple in Tibet. I placed in the center my most cherished totem, a small carved moonstone angel that had somehow stayed with me through all of the moves and chaos over the years. And then I waited for him to come home. I waited for him to notice. He did come home, two or three days later, hungover and apologetic, and yes, he'd been with another woman, but remember, that wasn't our deal. We were just best friends, right? Remember Silly? The hair ruffle again. I told her all about you, though. His charming half-smile and those big blue eyes looking right through me. I slumped onto the stairs behind me, all of the energy drained suddenly from my body. Oh, what did you tell her? I told her how you were like a virgin to me, and I didn't want to defile you. I wanted you to stay pure. She told me all about this thing called the Madonna Whore Complex. I received that, weirdly grateful for the woman who explained that to this man who I wished would just love all of me. I so wanted all of me to be loved in full. No editing. I saw an image of the two of them together having this intimate conversation about me while I was at home making an altar for his father. The paper-thin skin covering my never-healed wound peeled open and the blood gushed painfully through my body. I cried and then got righteous and angry and yelled at him to leave. He'd seen this before. He knew how it would end so he skipped right to it. He picked up the table with the altar and threw it across the room. The beads scattered and the moonstone angel shattered, and he left. 
I sat on the stairs until I couldn't cry anymore, and then swept up shards of broken glass from the vases and collected a few beads to keep and cried over my broken angel. William and I danced our dance. We brought out the worst in each other and sometimes the best. We wove love and hate into a blanket and wrapped ourselves in it. We ripped through all of our scars and exposed our wounds to each other. We begged the other to heal them, but then pulled away, suspicious and cruel when any attempt was made. It was here that I discovered I had been playing out mostly the repulsive, I'm bad, I'm wrong, I'm damaged part of my first gift. Now though I started playing out the other side, I'm perfect, I'm entitled, I'm injured and done wrong by and innocent and how dare you treat me like anything else. The full expression of my wounded, raging, orphaned self fell upon him, and the full expression of his wounded, raging, orphaned self fell upon me. Our traumas fit together like a lock and key, and the more I demanded that he rescue and protect me, the more he abandoned and betrayed me. All I knew is that he was the only one who could save me, and how dare he not, and in his refusal and inability to save me. He was destroying me. I couldn't bear to have another failed relationship. I couldn't bear that this is what my life had become. I was existing again in doubleness, living my personal hell in the paradise of Hawaii, blaming myself for everything while refusing to take responsibility for anything, deciding that if I could just get myself together and be a good enough person, that he would notice and decide to get himself together and take care of me. I demanded that he see me for who I truly was, my divine blueprint that I somehow knew still existed, and not this heap of a person. I hated myself for no longer knowing who I was, and I turned to him to see me in a way I could not see myself. Everything I did was a version of me begging to be loved. The more I needed him, the more my hungry ghost tried to devour him, the more he scrambled away and reeled backwards. I was so bitter. I raged against God and this bullshit existence where even when everything is easy, it's hard. And here's the really weird thing. Somehow at the center of it all, there was that divine friction. That scraping energy and the white electric line of tension running through the gap. Right there in the middle, there was a blazing holiness, and I was getting closer and closer to it. I don't know how else to describe it. I was approaching some deep truth within myself that I was not equipped to see. It was a sacred journey in the midst of the drama. He wasn't good to me. He used me. I wasn't good to him. I used him. But between us was that swirling friction that cleansing fire, the desire and the repulsion and the desire and the repulsion and the desire. Some possibility of some resolution of some great cosmic schism, annihilation and creation. I knew that if we could only get to the center, how many licks does it take, we would experience some holy sacrament. I would love to make it neat and easy and to sweep it up like those beads and shards of glass, but the truth is I can't. 
It wasn't clean and simple. We were wounded and acting out our trauma, no doubt. We were also playing sacred roles for each other. From the terrestrial to the cosmic, on every level, it was all happening simultaneously. I condemn the damage we did to each other, but there was something else going on there and I claim that. I claim the gifts we gave each other too. That's why it took so long to leave, so long to end it. We had activated something in the other and we were brushing up against the sacred and we knew it. It didn't even matter that he was him and I was me. William and Robin meant nothing. It was the dynamic, shifting, igniting, activating, alchemical energy between us that was calling the shots. Heroes Gamos people. And in that coming together, there is nothing less than utter annihilation of the pieces so that they can reassemble themselves into a new whole. I wanted the destruction. I wanted the death and resurrection. And that is what this felt like. A long and drawn out death. And the hope that on the other side there would be a rebirth into something new. Along with the potential of some spiritual transcendent transformation, while I was waiting for that to happen, my body was just dying. I was so sick. Smoking cigarettes, forgetting to eat and then binging until I was numb. Staying up all night trying to distract myself with anything I could get my hands on while he was out on dates. Swiping through Tinder and taking whatever attention I could get. This spinning in the flames burned everything away. It stripped me of my identity, my concept of self, my integrity. I was just pain. I was only my misery and I couldn't bear it. I couldn't bear myself. I was immolated unto my very core and when nothing flammable was left, I did the last thing I could. I didn't even do it consciously. I did it because, once again, there was no other option. I clung to my life. I kicked him out, just so we could get some space. Just so I could breathe. Just until we both found ourselves and got our shit together. I packed his things. And later he left the island, and later still so did I. We played our parts and then exited, stage left and went on with our lives. I was still in the darkness, though. The wheels were turning. There was a program running and I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't decline to finish what I'd started. It took me hurtling towards my destruction and there wasn't anything I could do about it. For a time after we part, I stay in the big, weird tin house I'd rented for us in the jungle. For the first time since my days in the yurt, I am alone. I look around and notice that, holy shit, I'm in Hawaii. In the peace and silence and space, I am able to stop smoking again. And I'm really tired. Every morning and every evening I sit on my porch, slumped, and watch the geckos cling to the walls and smell the ripe floral guava and listen to the sounds of the jungle and to the cacophony of birds. So many birds. Birds whose songs wake me each day and whose songs I can't shut out. 
My house has whole walls made of just screen, and there is no way to shut out the sounds of the birds. I dream of baby birds abandoned in nests, and birds hatching violently from eggs, birds falling from trees and birds clamoring at my windows. I dream of dark black birds and bright yellow birds, and I dream the bluebird of happiness pecks my eyes out. No, really, I dreamed that. I dream that huge hummingbirds swarm in massive flocks around me and stab me with their shiny beaks. Nature presses itself right up against me here. Roosters, wild and everywhere, start crowing at 3.30 in the morning, staking their claims in the jungle. Everything is always a little damp. The mold eats my leather belt and my rubber yoga mat. The winter comes and what that means here is rain. It rains straight down for weeks and stays dim and the red road floods and there is a relentless roar on the roof. It's chilly with the rain and the screens admit the pervasive moisture. I am both cold and sweating in this jungle in my one thin long-sleeved shirt, also damp. But for the first time since the yurt time, I'm alone and I love that. I am in love with my bed and don't really mind the dim, wet days. I spend my days reading, sleeping, dreaming. The adobe abode had been dark, but this is a different kind of darkness. It's a comforting darkness instead of a shadowy darkness. I hide inside it. I let it cover me, shelter me. The rain makes a barrier that nothing can penetrate. No one can get to me. I don't even mind the roosters after a while, or the minuscule fire ants who surprise me with searing, invisible pain if I lean against something I shouldn't. I don't mind the cacophony of cokey frogs that, like the loud pendulum clock in my childhood home, eventually fade so fully into the background that I stop hearing them at all. Sometimes at night I feel the thunder of the waves crashing against the island's high black cliffs, a deep rumbling resonating in my body, in my chest. I'm still working for the surgeon, California hours. I get up at 4.30 in the morning to start work at 5, and when I finish up at 1 or 2 in the afternoon, I get back into bed and go back to sleep. I forget to forget to eat and forget to stuff myself full. After a while, I catch sight of myself again become aware enough to look around and take note of me and my body and who and where I am. I realize that I've stopped counting the weeks since I broke my ankle. It has healed well enough so that I can walk with just a small limp, and some days it doesn't hurt at all, and I forget that it was ever broken. I start to venture out and visit the ocean. I start looking for yoga classes and start going to the gym but mostly I lie in bed, enjoying the predictable 12 hours of day and night here. Sometimes it strikes me that I'm on an island far away from everything. Mostly I feel like I'm in this room, in my body, untangling the knots and trying to relax into the peace of not having anything to do. Because it's always raining, I don't see the moon and stars often. But one night, Orion appears to the east, off of the Lanai, the same east that it lives in in Colorado when I knew its arrival meant that winter is coming, the same east that was visible through my triangular yurt window. 
The sky there was colder and the air drier and clearer and Orion would rise into my consciousness as I lay down to sleep and I would know it was time to chop wood and get ready for the long nights of feeding the fire so that me and my dogs wouldn't freeze to death when it got to 20 below. It surprises me to see Orion here in this tropical place. As if here on this island, I am under a different sky, in a different universe that since there is no cold winter here, it wouldn't exist. Seeing Orion is like seeing an old friend and makes me immeasurably happy. I take note of myself beginning to unravel in an interesting way. I want to know who I am if I don't do my hair and my face, don't care to look pretty. My hair, as ever in my life, is a curly, massive tangle of orangey strawberry blonde which I've always tried to tame with braids and potions and hot irons. Now here I am at 37 and can feel that any beauty is transitional. I begin to feel the edges of my grief that any beauty I had was only transactional. I stop trying to control my hair. I start noticing how men look past me now. I notice that I am becoming invisible, and instead of being terrified of losing the attention of the male gaze, I feel a deep relief. I don't just surrender to this unraveling, I feed it. I am angry and rebel against trying to stay pretty and attractive. I resent how it makes me hold my mouth a certain way, how it makes me measure my waist against my hips and work to find an angle that is flattering. It all feels like a massive waste of time. When I talk to a friend back on the mainland about how I'm feeling, he tells me that I'm describing a transitional phenomenon he's noticed in several of his women friends as they approach middle age. What you describe is something that I see as the sprouting and growth of the seedlings of grace. I like that idea so I keep it close and pray that is what's happening to me. The sprouting and growth of tiny bright green seedlings of grace sounds nicer than I'm having a nervous breakdown by myself on an island in the middle of nowhere. I read Tracks by Robin Davidson for the second time and return to the dream I've had of wandering through the wilderness on my own until everything but my innate nature is stripped away. Knowing on a removed intellectual level how hard that stripping away would be how the trials would be through fire, but longing for that anyway. I want the trials to be of my own making, not these things that just kept happening to me. I wanted my body to move and work. I know I am wandering through my own internal wilderness and have been. I just want to feel something else. I can sense that I won't be on this island longer than a year or two, that the next thing is coming up quickly and I'll wish, when it does, that I would have been more grateful here, more in the moment, embraced the ease and peace of it, soaked it into my bones. I recall that I have moved 19 times in 16 years and I wonder how that is possible. Where will I go next? What will I do? Who will I be and who will I be with? I stop these thoughts when I remember to. Things will change, that is certainty. I don't want to miss this, so I start to try to stay present with the reality of what's happening to and around me. I struggle to surrender and calm my desire to imprint my own agenda here, 
I struggle against the ease of it. Nothing to do? Unacceptable. Do the dishes if you can't do anything else. Force yourself to create something. A health regimen. A niggling worry that eats away at your day. A routine. Find some friends for God's sake. Cook something. Eat something. Volunteer somewhere. Plan an arduous trip. Do something. Anything. Instead, I wander alone from room to room. I watch my hair grow and listen to the same sad songs over and over and sit and sip coffee, aimlessly walking barefoot up and down the red road in front of my big, weird tin and screen house. I crawl into bed whenever the urge strikes me and wander off to visit the ocean two hours after the idea arises. I feel vaguely guilty and try to use it as a reminder to bless the planet and be grateful. Really grateful. A new feeling that sometimes emanates from my body like a tangible thing. I can feel it coming out of my chest and reaching up to the sun that I know is up there above the blanket of clouds. Sometimes it makes the corners of my mouth turn up in a gentle smile, and then I become afraid because it feels like the edges of a panic of joy. My nervous system is wound tight, scared, wrapped up around itself in the center of my body, in my bones and muscles and tendons, and because of that and because of the hours I spend laying in bed, my neck locks up and doesn't let loose, not for many years. Sometimes I remember that I can ask for things. If I wanted to, I could ask for love in my life, for health and well-being and direction and clarity. I could ask for healing, I could ask for help, but I don't ask for anything. That feels dangerous. Don't ask for anything, don't ask for trouble. Don't make any sudden moves. Maybe get back in bed for a while. Eventually the rain slows down and the trees drip water from their leaves and the sun shines and as the light returns, I start to wonder why my life has been so full of drama. Why the bad relationships? How did I get here? Why had I kept repeating these patterns? I was smart, capable. What was going on? I found a therapist, Jacob. Jacob had an office on the second floor of an old building in Hilo. He was maybe in his mid-forties and didn't wear shoes and didn't diagnose me to my face and gave me astonishing third secret options in response to my either-or certainties. I shrunk into the old ratty armchair in his office and pulled my knees up to my chest and rubbed my knuckles and fretted and sweated while he sprawled on his rolling chair, all open and unguarded, pushing himself around with his bare feet, listening to me carefully navigate my landmines and tell him just enough to get some answers. I saw him every two weeks for 18 whole months. I specifically wanted my therapist to be a man. I wanted a man's perspective. But mostly I was nowhere near being able to accept my pain, and I didn't want any empathetic, feminine, crumpled brows aimed at me, sympathizing with me over the abuse and trauma and booze and chaos. I couldn't take it. I know that's generalizing. I know. And don't get me wrong, Jacob had, in earnest, that look on his face a few times during our work together. In response, I would turn my head, extend my arm, 
show him my palm and say, stop it. Don't look at me like that. He laughed. I know, I know. I don't want to tell you my whole sad story. I just want you to tell me how healthy people act, okay? Just give me the tools. He'd smile and shrug and nod and stretch out his long legs and put his hands behind his head and look at the ceiling and talk about these things called codependency, boundaries, intimacy, vulnerability, all kinds of new and magical ideas. I began to reform my identity. I began to spend more time near the ocean instead of in my bedroom. I got rid of the big weird house I'd rented for William and I that was way too expensive and found a tiny dome on the Hamakua coast. It was surrounded by a tall, swaying eucalyptus forest that smelled like you imagine it would, and there were three horses just down the road and I made friends with their owner. She took me riding and I was delighted to find I hadn't forgotten how to be with horses. Every night I watched the wild pigs eat soft pink fallen hibiscus flowers just a few feet from the porch. I had a banana tree in my front yard and hung bunches to ripen, high enough so that the rats couldn't get to them. I ate mangoes the size of my head and felt the big ancient volcano Mauna Loa holding his steady presence behind me. I felt Pele too and knew she was churning. When I'd arrived, I'd asked for her permission to be here, as instructed by others who'd been on the island longer than me, and felt she'd granted it, but I didn't want to press my luck. I stayed to the north, safely in Mauna Loa's comforting shadow. I was slowly healing. I was regaining my health and my vitality. I was still fragile. I was learning from Jacob about boundaries about setting my own and respecting those of others. I was learning that codependency feels just like addiction and that it has the same cure. I was learning that I was not perfect and I was not repulsive. I was not a virgin or a whore. There was a secret third option that was something different, something that had to do with self-acceptance, responsibility, interdependence, I began to trust myself, but only to a point. Jacob told me that ideally boundaries were somewhat porous. I could decide what I allowed in. They could be malleable instead of static and rigid. I nodded at Jacob, but he didn't know how far from center I could swing. That's a nice idea, I thought, but no thank you. That's no way to stay safe. I'm going to build mine out of titanium. I'm going to weld them together so that there's not any light coming through the seams. I decided I could trust myself as long as I was alone forever. That sounded fine. I put systems in place to make sure I couldn't lose control again. No drugs, no alcohol, no cigarettes, no junk food, no processed food, no bread, no meat, no dairy, no cooked food. Raw fruits and vegetables only. No television, no social media. Certainly no men, for God's sake. No flirting, no touching, no relationships, no friendships. Only control was allowed from here on out. Control is safe, like the ocean from a distance is safe. 
No slippery slopes here, no surrey. There was a narrow path I could walk to survive myself, and if it meant setting my boundaries in steel, so be it. I would not blow up my life again. Instead, I wrote bad poetry to myself. In my little dome, celibate, healing, I do not allow desire or hope. Unencumbered is dangerous. I divert the barest flutterings of arousal, excitement, joy. I push aside these wisps as they arise, up and out of my gut. I am careful not to let the breeze fan them to flame. I am careful not to clamp down abruptly, perhaps trapping them inside of me to bury and burrow and fester and wake me at three. Sweating in the dark, I feel my body create them and I feel them leave. These effusions I cannot contain. I keep them small, barest, subtle smoke. I guide them away, out the window, to be delicately shredded by the rain. And, sometimes through some unknown grace, I snap into consciousness, like I did tonight walking down a city street on a remote island, noticing for the first time, though I've lived here for over a year, that distinct feeling of here, I am. When my brain quiets and I'm in my body, on a street, in the world, and suddenly I'm overcome with such affection and tender love for all of our joyful, silly, poignant, suffering asses. I kept very close watch of myself and did not let myself stray. I noticed my progress. I noticed that I wasn't crying myself to sleep anymore, and I pulled my boundaries in closer. Where I had been brave before, taking risks, jumping from one timeline to the next, I was now cautious, watchful, restrained. But no matter how tightly I wrapped myself around myself, no matter how intentional and precise I became, no matter how cleanly I cut off any external input, the deep longing inside of me to be loved, protected, rescued and seen, did not go away. It stayed with me, an abandoned shadow child forever seeking my attention. Since William, since getting sober, since learning from my therapist how to operate in the world like a semi-normal person, I was not inside of my desperate need anymore, inside of that hunger that was impossible to satiate. I was no longer smaller than it, a slave to it, I was over here now, off to the side, seeing the world through another set of eyes. This other and me, we kept an uneasy peace. We were roommates who weren't speaking. We slid past each other in the hallway. We avoided eye contact in the kitchen, but try as I might, I could not rid myself of this dark and needy part of myself. I began to understand William's reeling away, This devouring presence was terrifying and relentless, even when wrangled down to a manageable size through 18 long months of therapy. It was a pressure I couldn't relieve. I'd gained some perspective, some distance, 
and still it was overwhelming. Then one day, this monumental thing happens. I am sitting down on the couch, looking at her, my abandoned little wraith. We are across the room from each other. She is a writhing, seeking, pleading desperation, longing for resolution, constantly in motion, folding in on herself. I know that if I let my guard down for one moment, she will flash across the room and overwhelm me. This is the stalemate we've been living in. Solely because I've tried everything I can think of to get rid of her, I finally surrender to the last option available to me and decide to take a closer look. As soon as I do, I see that she is every unwanted part of myself, banished. She is all of my self-hatred, every time I'd abandoned myself for the sake of another's preference. She is the container for every assault, every shattered boundary, every half-kept promise, every misguided, innocent, and malicious wrong I'd ever committed. She carries the weight of every sin. She is my two-year-old self, grown up alone. She is who drank all the poison I'd swallowed. I am astonished. More astonishing is that my voice is with her, over there across the room, stuck in her throat. I see it there, like smoke, swirling blue. She is everything I'd suppressed for the unmet promise of safety. She is my crying out to God, my longing for home, my fall from grace, my wounded maiden, my righteous orphan, my self-pity, my victimhood. She is pitiful, tortured, racked with the things I refuse to see. I recognize in her all of the parts of myself I cannot bear, and I am overcome with an unfathomable tenderness. She is only forward-moving energy, only desirous of the same unity and resolution that I demanded of William. I give an inch and she instantly takes it. I am terrified. I give another and she sucks up that space too. I muster my courage and hold myself still. I stop struggling against that iron cuff around my ankle and give it some slack. She is a tsunami that I will not survive, and I brace myself and open. I allow her in, and at the same time I lean towards the pain, as close to her as I can get. I am hit with her full force, and in a phenomenal act of courage, I yield. I allow her to obliterate me. There is sickening, physical, rolling shame. A flash of light. She returns home, blowing through my heart and breaking it into a million pieces. She shatters me into being. And then there is silence. She is in me now. She is in me and me now. We are. I am. She is the answer to the prayer I prayed to the moon those years ago outside of my yurt. In exchange for my integration of her back into myself, 
Her immediate forgiveness of me tenderizes my guts. She gifts me with my voice and with all of the wisdom and strength she has been gathering during her exile. These are the things I speak to myself. The point of life is not safety. The point of life is not static, still ease. It is truly wonderful when life is gentle and we find sweetness and peace, and during those times the ticket is to relish every second of it. By doing that, those times multiply and become richer. They are abundant if we seek to notice them, but even they are ultimately fleeting. This too shall pass applies to everything, to every experience, the good, the bad, the boring, the exciting, the lovely, the mundane, the horrific, the sublime, the peaceful, the frenetic, all of it. In this world of form, everything moves. We will have loss, we will have joy, we will have lack, and we will have abundance. There is a time for every purpose under heaven here on this planet. Stepping right up to that reality and looking squarely at it, we face the fact that everything passes, everything changes, and everything transforms. Everything rises, everything crumbles, everything grows and decays. This truth is unsentimental and unaffected by your flailing and your desperation to escape. Equally true is the reality that grace and love underpin everything. Yes, everything. Even loss, even our most unloved parts, even the inevitability of death. Keep the inevitability of your death, by the way, as your close companion, to remind you not to miss this glorious, ephemeral life. Speak your shame. Say it over and over out loud. Don't repeat it quietly to yourself like a mantra that imprisons you, running grooves into your soft gray brain. Say it out loud until it transforms from something that isolates you and keeps you small and fearful to something that frees the whole world. Say out loud the things that lurk in the shadows and tug at your mouth, keeping it downturned and worried that you are, at your core, perhaps an inherently unlovable soul. Speak your shame out loud while you look directly into the shadow and finally realize that your deepest wounds have nothing to do with your worthiness and everything to do with your warrior heart. As soon as you shine light into those dark places, the gems are revealed, the elixir is found, and you can finally begin the journey home. Speak your shame, stand in your strength, heal yourself, and heal the world. Desire itself is holy, but no one owes anyone anything. Love with demands isn't love. Love without boundaries isn't love. True boundaries are not armor. Boundaries are not demands. The, it's your job to meet my needs and in exchange I'll meet your needs, transaction is not love. Honoring the sovereignty of self and other is true love, even if that means there is no relationship at all. Devotion is freely given in the presence of open-handed grace. And if it is not, the high gift of that open-handed grace 
does not lower itself to accept some simulacrum of devotion. Unconditional love for all beings and circumstances is always right there, waiting for you to peek under the thin veil of fear and notice. Abundant joy is your birthright and is looking for you, announcing itself from every atom in existence. It only finds you through an unarmored heart. It contains multitudes. You contain multitudes. Stand fully in the empty heart of paradox and bear the world in its totality. Union with another is only a reflected internal union. And union is my jam. A few weeks later, I dreamed that I was hiking through high mountain snow, desperately reading Herman Melville to everyone I met. Everyone. Mountain goats, birds, the odd fellow traveler. I would read a page and then rip it from the book and push it into their hands or mouths or talons. Whatever message I was trying to share seemed incredibly important. I finally arrived in a town, a snowier version of the town I'd grew up near in southern Colorado. My friends came to greet me. They were the mayor and the city council and the welcome committee and they showed me all of the work they'd done to restore the town, how happy everyone was here. They gifted me a huge ranch house, all wood paneled and shag carpeted. I got comfortable. I stayed inside for a long time. The wooden slatted blinds wouldn't open so the house was always dim with narrow stripes of dust glittered sunlight in the afternoons. Sometimes I would walk outside in the evenings and everywhere I went were messages pressed into the snow. Meet me in that meadow, on this date, you must be there. I knew they were from someone I would love. I noticed them, but didn't make any plans. I was languishing, staying inside my dim, comfortable world, until one day a baby appeared, sitting like an Easter egg in the heavy green shag carpet in the living room. He was fat-cheeked and fully present, taking me in with big, dark, grown-up eyes. I picked him up and put him on my hip. He looked at me carefully and said, Hey, what are you doing? Go. On the Hamakua coast, on the big island of Hawaii, in the shadow of Mauna Loa, it starts to rain. And rain. And rain. My steep driveway becomes muddy and impassable. It rains 40 inches in three days and then it just keeps on raining. It is a relentless, straight down, roaring, pounding rain that leaves no space around the drops. I am underwater. There is a bridge over a stream between me and the main highway and I am terrified the bridge will be washed away and I'll be stuck. I start to pack. I book a flight. After almost two years on the island, it's time to go. Now. I get out, cross the bridge, and stay with a friend until my flight while it rains and rains and rains. I go back to the little dome one last time to do a final cleanup. The sky is blue now, between storms, but I leave my car at the bottom of the hill because of the mud and hike up the two-mile driveway through the eucalyptus forest. I do a walkthrough of my little dome, say goodbye to the hibiscus flowers and the banana tree and to my landlords, and then I am out, 
jaunting back down the steep two-track dirt road, feeling giddy, free as a bird. A shadow passes over the sun. The forest grows quiet as the birds stop chirping. My shoulders tighten and I feel a cold presence behind me. All of the tiny hairs on my neck and arms stand up on top of the goose flesh that breaks out. I stop and look around, look into the forest, and swallow. The eucalyptus are swaying and rubbing up against each other and singing their eerie, moaning whale song. I suddenly notice all of the shadows. I see figures in the forest, dark and furtive, moving between the trees and whispering. Without thought or conscious effort, my hand slides into my pocket and I pull out a shiny quarter. I balance it on my thumb and then flip it, end over end, into the forest. It's a bizarre moment watching myself act out this strange ritual done automatically, unconsciously, heightened by the chilling shift in the air around me. The quarter glints silver, reflecting the light and disappears into the chaos of the forest. The sky goes bright, the birdsong returns, and I feel unburdened again. I paid the ferryman. I survived my journey into the underworld. I made it. I'm free. I leave Hawaii in the gorgeous window between the last new moon of the year and Christmas Day. I slip out of my too tight past and step forward into the silky future. I can see it all with fresh eyes. I carefully remove my rusted metal shackles and give them a Viking funeral. I let go of my sick love of self-flagellation. I surrender to the delicious potential of life. It feels so gorgeously indulgent that any part of me still clinging to fear is seduced into letting go seduced into brushing against electric possibilities. I am seduced into joy, in spite of it all. I still hear the clamor of voices in the background. Is this fair? What about all of the suffering in the world? Who am I to think that I should, deserve, need, can, am capable? Will it mean anything? What if it changes nothing? What if it changes everything? Yes, love, I know you're scared, but let's do it anyway. Because it feels good. Because no one ever eased anyone's real suffering with dumb suffering. Because playing it small and safe is boring and uninspiring. And it's already indulgent to take everything so damn seriously anyway. But mostly because the idea of it feels expansive and exciting. Like laughter bubbling up. Like fresh love and relief. I took the last flight of the day out of Hilo and landed in LA just before sunrise, watching the lines of fire burning up and down the California coast. I went home, went back to my little valley in southern Colorado and back to my little hometown and all of the people I'd known. I know you can't go home. I know that. I know that I couldn't return the same person I'd been when I left, but that was okay because I was transformed. I went home full of faith, unable to muster the energy to be afraid I'd return only to be abandoned again. Inside, I knew I couldn't be abandoned anymore anyway. The only one who mattered, me, would never abandon me again. I found it all there, 
all of the places my sister and I had named from the backs of our paint ponies. Goat Rock, Picnic Rock, Raven Rock, Favorite Rock, Owl Woods and Serendipity Trail, Meadow of Morning, Mosquito Swamp, Rocky Ridge and Crow Pass, and the sacred secret place, the place we didn't name, the source place deep in the tangle of the genesis of the valley, with the little spring and the big cedar and the shelter of a cave, the place that fed our valley with life and magic. It was all there. I arrived home in the middle of winter and everything I owned fit into two suitcases. I didn't have any winter clothes. I didn't even have a coat. I bought myself boots and hats and layers and gear and started taking walks in snowstorms. I knew that the winter would pass and I had missed it so much. I wanted to soak up everything at once. I hiked up the ridge to the north, the path sweeping below Raven Rock on the right, then Spaceship Rock on the left. Just west of the last meadow near the big ponderosa with the old bare bones scattered underneath, at the mouth of the wild, steep, dark, and tangled aspen trail, cold and shadowed on the north-facing side of the ridge, near where the four who are one had slid up and out of the horizon, enormous and silent, I came across a big, white, and bloody vertebrae, shiny and fresh and gnawed on. The snow was blinding white everywhere except for right there where it was trampled and slushy with blood, and I thought, that's odd. And then my eyes got wide and I felt like I was being watched, and I spent the whole hike down electric and giddy, looking over my shoulder and missing the dogs who I'd left at home, all crippled from yesterday's too long hike. I was back. Back in the world I understood. I knew the rules here. The danger and beauty were intertwined and made perfect sense. I was inside my true home. Nature, unfettered, completely unapologetic and clear. I was reborn hiking the old trails over and over. I remembered them back to life. And they, so deeply embedded in my soul and psyche, remembered me back to life. It was glorious to know that winter would pass and that spring is inevitable. It was glorious to feel, in the fresh marrow of my bones, that realized promise of spring. For more information, or to book a one-on-one session with me, visit honeyheart.org.